I think everybody loves a parade, right? Um, when I was a boy growing up in Belfast, there was a parade we went to every July. Um, I'm a, a bit embarrassed now because of the meaning of that parade. On the 12th of July, um, we had a parade, and the only pe people who went to that parade were Protestants. Um, there was a, an, another parade at a different date, but the Protestant parade um, was one that loved to walk through the Catholic areas of Bethlehem, or, I'm sorry, not Bethlehem, <laughs> Belfast. It's a different place, completely. Um, but, but I remember as, as a boy, there were two kinds of bands that I really loved. One was a flute band, and, you know, it was, it's nice to hear one person play a flute, but when you have like 20 or 30 flute players coming around the corner, it's just kind of glorious. And that was um, surpassed only by the pipe band. You know, if you hear one pipe, it's beautiful. If you hear like 30, 40 pipes, um, now what they say is the reason they march is to get away from the noise. There you go. That's a pipe band. I love pipe bands. I want to talk to you today about the war horse and the donkey. Um, at this time in Jerusalem, uh, Palm Sunday and then Holy Week, the population of Jerusalem was basically grew from 40,000 to something like 200,000 because of the Passover feast that was going on. And there were two parades that converged in Jerusalem. Um, the one parade was led by Pontius Pilate, and it was a parade that consisted of um, probably 600 war horses and hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers. So if you can imagine, I mean, one war horse is huge. And a lot of the history of humankind kind of focuses on these war horses, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. And even today, if you drive through the states and some, you know, historic cities, you will, you'll see statues of war horses. Um, and history is replete with the sound of stories about war horses. These war horses were, were led by Pontius Pilate, and he was the governor of Judea, of that region of, of Israel. And with these all war horses trailing behind him, and then the hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers, the reason that they were there was that it was a holiday. And they knew that during the Passover holiday, there could be trouble. So it's not unlike what we have seen recently, where um, you know the militia shows up or the police show up. Somebody has to go and see if everything is going to be peaceful, or whether they ought to worry and whether they ought to arm themselves or protect themselves or the city. And so all of these um, great war horses with their riders, all of the foot soldiers would march in, in a resplendent way into Jerusalem. They would have come from the west. So all the way to the west coast from Jerusalem is a place called Caesarea Maritime, which was a great fortress built by Herod the Great. And they would march all the way across into Jerusalem from the west. And at the very same time, um, there was a small procession, a small parade that came from the north. And that parade is the one that Bethany told us about, where Jesus on a colt, the, the, the offspring of donkey, not even a full-grown donkey, but a young donkey, it comes down one horse with one rider, 
converging into the city from the north. And the timing of these two processions um, is actually a pivot in the history of humankind. What happened there in Jerusalem in the week to follow would change everything, not only for people of faith, not only for us, but for actually the whole way the world understood itself, the whole way that the world understood who was in charge and who was not in charge, and um, how, how they can relate to each other in those various categories of people. So we find in Zechariah that there's a quote that is picked up on in the New Testament in explaining what happened on Palm Sunday. And here's what Zechariah said. This was long before Jesus came. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation. <clears throat> Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. Now let me give you a little bit of Jewish and Roman history and I hope you can just bear with me. I don't, I don't love history or geography and I was reminded I, I came across um, a book from grammar school, my Latin book, and what I had written in my Latin book was this. Uh, Latin is a language as dead as dead can be. First it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. So I wrote that at like 13 years old. But I did have to learn some things about Rome, Roman rule and that sort of thing in learning Latin. And Latin and Greek now just help me understand what the prescription means when I go to the doctor. <laughs> a little bit of, of history on this whole thing. So we have great empires in the history of the world. And you know that in between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's a dark period, a, a quiet period, where God does not seem to be raising prophets. He doesn't seem to be saying anything. And in, in the, towards the end of the Hellenist kind of empire in Judea, there was a Jewish family called the Maccabees. And they revolted against the Hellenists. And there's a particular um, series of stories of great things that happened. Um, the stories of, of uh, Judaism celebrated today, looking back to the period of time when they staged an insurrection against the Hellenists. And they actually took over the rule of Israel one more time. So it was a, a period that we don't know an awful lot about. So unless you're Catholic, your Bible doesn't even have books that explain this. I don't know why. I'm sure there's some good theological reason. But it's a really good idea to read the Apocrypha. Read about the Maccabees. Read about what was going on during that period of time. And what was going on was that they restored worship in Israel. And, and you know that that was the downfall of Israel and Judah every time they fell apart. They would, they would lose their temple worship or their um, respect for God's presence and the kind of ethical and moral lives they should live among the other nations. And so there would be judgment upon them. Oftentimes it came um, at the hand of an oppressor. And so at this period of time, the Maccabees restored 
the temple worship of Israel and restored the worship of Israel, and it was a time of blessing. Now, after the Maccabees, um, and don't worry too much about time, I'll just tell you there's about 200 years that I'm describing here. It passes quickly, but it gets us to where we want to go today. In 63 BC, Jerusalem fell to Rome. So the Maccabees had been the priestly ruling class. They were Hasmodians, if you're interested. And in this year, in 63 BC, Jerusalem falls and Rome is the empire that takes over. During that time, um, there was a great king called Herod the Great. Great is kind of an, a, a term of, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he was great in exploits. He was also great in atrocities. And Rome tolerated the Jewish religion. So they tolerated Herod as the king that could keep order over his people. But even Herod was a puppet king. Um, uh, he, he was someone who was kind of kowtowing to the Romans all the time. He built a phenomenal temple and palace, and he was the one who built the, the great military outpost on the coast. Uh, he did incredible things. But he was a very, very wicked man. And he's, he's the Herod that we read about as we get into the story of the infant Jesus and so on. After he died, the, the Judean region was divided into three among his sons. And once again, the Romans would tolerate these Jewish uh, priestly leaders um, as long as they would keep their people quiet and there was always just this undercurrent of hatred and resentment against the Romans. Um, and even the priests and, um, and, and governors that were endorsed by the Romans, um, the people resented and fought them and resisted against them. Archelaus was the son of Herod who was given the, the region around Jerusalem. And so the two other sons were given other areas of Judea. And Archelaus was the one who was given the opportunity to reign in Jerusalem. However, he messed up. And the Romans had kind of had their fill with tolerating this Jewish religion. And so they appointed governors. So we're getting to where we need to get. Pontius Pilate was a governor uh, under the Romans. And he was the one that kept military order, kept the people in control, and he was the one on this day, on Palm Sunday, led this great parade riding a war horse into Jerusalem. Now, as that entourage and great procession arrived, the people would have been filled with dread over what might happen. Um, they were filled with animosity because they all resented the very presence of Rome, and yet they were incapable of resisting them. They were incapable of fighting back. They had lost their religion. They had lost their homeland because there was an occupier now. And it just rushes forward to the, the Russian-Ukrainian situation, and you think, my goodness, the, the Romans were as violent as Putin. They were destructive. They would, they would ride war horses over crowds of people. They would um, trod people down 
because the only thing that they cared about was the supremacy of Rome and the, the emperor worship that was part of Roman culture. So from the very beginning, um, Roman emperors were ascribed deity. Um, you would not only respect the emperor, but you would worship the emperor as God. And in, inscriptions of one, the, the first few emperors uh, called them son of God, savior, um, peace bringer, and those were the ways that people would relate to the Roman emperor. Um, Tiberius was the one at this point. Um, he would have been regarded as God himself. And so the, the imperial empire was a religious system. So you can see why it would be so grating on a people who had at least a memory of worshiping Jehovah God, that they were told now that they were not to mention anything about that God. They might worship him if they needed to, but it would be under the scrutiny, under the careful watch of these soldiers all over the place, even around the temple. Um, early Christians um, had to make a decision. In his book, Disciple, one Ortiz says a typical greeting in Rome, in in the Roman Empire in the early centuries, was that one person would greet another by saying, Caesar is Lord. And the proper answer was, yes, the Lord is Caesar. And there was this group of people who began to challenge that greeting. So you might say, Caesar is Lord, and the answer would come back, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you can see how in the early church, they were accused actually of blasphemy because they weren't worshiping the emperor as they properly should within the Roman Empire. So what that does for us is it helps us understand that um, Pilate's parade really had two aspects to it. It was a display of Roman imperial power. I mean, it was overwhelming in its size. The power militarily, um, uh, violently, over this oppressed people. And the parade into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was a demonstration of that imperial power. Um, do not resist our occupation. Secondly, it was a display of Roman imperial theology. So the theology of Rome was one that was totally atheistic in terms of our proper relationship to our creator God and our covenant God. Those who were under the thumb of Rome were required to worship the emperor as God. And so it was a dangerous thing to do um, to, to you know, thumb your nose at that, resist that in any way, because the, the imperial power would just quash you. And the ideology of Rome was that the emperor was, in fact, from God. The, the first Roman emperor um, was believed to have been conceived by a god and then um, you know, joined up with a goddess, and it was a, it was a god that was created, and that tradition then was passed on, um, uh, emperor to emperor. Two parades arrived that day, and I think understanding just the size of, of the Roman parade and all of the meaning that was associated with it, and Jerusalem being the focal point of it all, 
um, helps us see the juxtaposition as an incredible irony and an incredible comparison between what Roman citizens prided themselves in and what they believed in and what Jesus came to claim and what people who would follow Jesus would also believe. Jesus' parade proclaimed the kingdom of God. It was the pivot for human history because all of the things that had happened in the Old Covenant, um, they all had to do with a nation of people trying to get themselves properly oriented to the true God. And then they should have been able to explain that, to, um, to demonstrate that to all the other nations. That, that was why they were specially called by God. And so when the Old Covenant failed, not because there was anything wrong with it, but there was something really wrong with the people of God. They had bad hearts, and they, they, they sinned, they complained, they messed up all the time. And God said, well, I'll do a new thing. And later in the prophets, we hear that God's going to give them new hearts to forgive their sins, and he's going to give his spirit to them so that they can live as they ought to in a covenant relationship with him. When Jesus comes, he is coming to announce the kingdom of God that is going to be the um, enhanced, corrected, shifted, renewed, however you'd like to see it, relationship terms between God and people. And so what will that look like? Well, the only thing that has ever been known in terms of an empire is that they use power and oppression and cruelty and rank and wealth, and they impose their order on their citizens. So when Jesus arrives, he arrives ironically, but also very deliberately on the least of a horse. Um, I don't know what happened when the disciples went and found this tied up donkey. You can try to imagine they show up and they start taking this donkey. Donkey's owners come out and say, what are you, what are you guys doing? Uh, the master needs it. And they go, oh, okay, okay, you're good. And so they took the donkey. They took the colt of a donkey and Jesus rode it. It would have been a ridiculous scene, actually, because they knew that at the other end of the city there were war horses and there were soldiers and there was armor and there was splendor. And here's a peasant who is riding a colt with a bunch of peasants coming with him. And then however many there were that were gathered in this incredible display as, as they saw their opportunity that maybe what the prophets had talked about, what they had expected, um, maybe it was going to happen, but could it be that a peasant riding a donkey is going to overthrow the Roman Empire? They believed it was. Um, by the end of the week, they didn't believe it was. By the end of the week, instead of cheering him, they cried out, crucify him. But what was happening on the entry to Jerusalem was that Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God. And what a way to announce it. You know, it was like a political rally, but poorly organized. Like Bethany said, they didn't have the news out. They didn't send heralds out to say, behold, the kingdom's coming. Um, the king is coming. Jesus simply and... Um, very intentionally 
came quietly and peacefully into a city um, that is the, the kingpin of the interaction between heaven and earth, between God and people. Jerusalem is the place to watch. It is still the place to watch. The future of our world is in Jerusalem. Um, the events that are still to happen that are, that are uh, predicted in the Bible will happen in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a place of very intentional focus on the part of those who are followers of Jesus. So what was happening was that two parades um, were the collision of two realities. They were the collision of empire and kingdom. Um, Pilate's procession proclaimed the power of empire. So we are left with the question that was before the inhabitants of Jerusalem, before the whole Roman Empire, um, before those who were the, the Galilean followers of this uh, you know, unknown teacher rabbi from an unknown place, um, from an unknown family. Um, there's the empire presenting itself with all of its splendor, saying, come this way. And on the other hand, you have a person who comes and proclaims a kingdom and says, everything is going to be different if you'll follow me. Everything is going to be different. Every way is going to be different. And I think both historically and presently, we need to reckon with the question, am I at the parade of an empire or am I at the parade of a kingdom? You maybe needed to choose in Jerusalem which one you were going to go to. The Pontius Pilate parade was certainly splendid, loud. Um, the Jesus one was kind of scary. What, what would happen? But the question was out there. It, it's going to be one or the other. This is a binary choice. It's either empire or kingdom. And to be followers of Jesus, um, we need to regularly consider whether or not we are kingdom followers as opposed to empire followers. And we might say, well, I don't follow any empire. I don't know what you're talking about. The way that empires have always functioned is a worldly way. Um, the ways of the empire are the ways that make sense humanly. The ways of the empire are power. If you have power, you can have an empire. They are the ways of control. They are the ways of oppression. They are the ways of wealth. Every empire amasses these things so that it can subjugate its, its, its subjects. But the kingdom of God comes in every way differently than the empire asserts itself. And that is the question of discipleship. It's the question of following Jesus. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Um, Andrew and I were part of a webinar this week, and one of the things that was said was really profound. It's very simple, but it was to say that um, becoming a Christian is not a transaction, it's a transformation. So it's not the, that you sign a dotted line, it's not you, that you get into something, but you enter into a way of being transformed. And the way of Jesus um, was set up by that, that very simple and yet very profound means of introducing the kingdom of God. Take the most 
grand parade you can imagine, and the opposite of it is what Jesus did. Uh, take the greatest crowds you can imagine, and that's not what Jesus was interested in. Um, take the greatest expectations, and Jesus already was, was being pretty clear that the way that his kingdom would come would be via his death. Uh, and, and that played out in that holy week, um, the incredible passion of Christ. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the, the birth of the church, we then find ourselves in a world-changing kind of a scenario. But it will be world-changing in the sense that every way the world thinks makes sense will not make sense to be a follower of Christ. What Jesus did in defeating death by death is the greatest irony of history. And yet it is the most powerful thing that has ever been enacted in history. So tomorrow and the day after and the day after, I'm probably, you're probably going to be faced with questions about whether we will go the route of an empire or the route of a kingdom. And it is, it is a route, the route of the kingdom, that is in tune with the way God thinks, the way God acts, the way God plans, and it is rarely, if ever, in tune with the ways that make human sense to us. So when Jesus said, come and follow me, he, he didn't mean um, come and be subjects in, in my, my kingdom and palace. And that's what they thought. You know, remember when, when the mom came and said, could my boys sit at your right hand and left hand? And Jesus said, that's not the way it goes. In my kingdom, we don't organize that way. So everything um, seems to be topsy-turvy in the kingdom of God. It's actually right way up. So the things that have to do with rank and power and wealth and success, um, we, we need to hold them suspect and say, but is that the way of a king riding a donkey into the kingdom of an empire? Or is there a different way that we should function? Kathy Imus is going to come and read us a poem just to help us think of what we're talking about here. This is by Malcolm Geit, the infamous English poet. Geit. <laughs> there you go. If I'd known I was doing this, I would have worn lipstick. Sorry. I, I would too. So. <laughs> I'll hold the mic. I got it. I got it. Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart. The Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Oh, crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he is bringing changes the tune. I know what lies behind the surface flourish that so quickly fades self-interest and fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come, break the resistance, and make me your home. Thanks, Kathy. Empire Kingdom. 